Hi everybody, Nick Coleus, an editor for Bodybuilding.com here. No video today, alas, because our guest is over Skype and I didn't think anybody really wanted to be uh, watching me sit here, stroke my chin and stare at the screen. If that is your sort of thing, feel free to come by my desk and watch me work any day of the week though. Today is part podcast, part intervention. Essentially, we're here to talk about your squat, Mr. or Mrs. Bro. And let's face it, your squat, it's ugly. The depth, your back, your ankles, your knees, it's all bad news. And to be clear, that's not, it's not all your fault. You were told you needed to back squat and squat heavy in order to consider yourself a lifter, period. You were told that glutes are the new pecs and that heavy back squats are the only way to build them. It's the king of lifts, right? And if you don't do it, then you aren't even the king of your own body. And, you know, this isn't totally wrong. Squats are great, and they'll get you strong and add muscle. And we have many, many articles on bodybuilding.com explaining the importance of the squat movement pattern. But many lifters, perhaps most lifters, alas, aren't really ready for back squats yet, barbell back squats, even if they've been doing them for a long time. And this is also a message you'll find a lot of great strength coaches speaking to on bodybuilding.com and other sites. So I wanted to present an interesting kind of alternative approach that I found pretty fascinating from one of our contributors, very smart strength coach and doctor of physical therapy named John Russin. He wrote an article for us recently called The More Gain, Less Pain Guide to Squats. And I talked with him over the phone about it recently. And um, we went over the back squat as a destination in your training, not really as a starting point, and laid out a plan to help get you there and get the most out of that movement once you're ready. It was a pretty interesting chat, so let's dive in. Uh, John Russin, welcome to the Bodybuilding.com podcast. Um, Nick, man, it's awesome to be here. Glad to have you. And you, you've written a half dozen or so articles for our site so far about a range of topics, programming stuff, uh, back pain, using great tools like the trap bar. But most recently, the topic was squat variations and squat progressions in your article, the more pain, not the more pain, the more gain, less pain guide to squats. Uh, and it's a guide, but it's also kind of a progression on, on how to kind of earn the right to kneel before the throne of the uh, the king of lifts and um, how to get heavier and see your form improve, right? That's not something you usually see as, as somebody goes heavier, that their form actually could improve on things. And I wanted to go through this progression with you and help our listeners get the most of each step out of the way. Um, but first, let's talk about the, the so-called king of lifts, the, the barbell back squat. Um, I see people doing some version of this movement every day in the company gym here, and they look wildly different in terms of depth, bar position, back angle, feet, all kinds of stuff. Um, so what's what's wrong with the back squat as as a, a piece of gym dogma that you must you must uh, go you know go heavy as soon as possible? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, the squat itself. You know, the squat I view as one of the six foundational movement patterns that every single person needs to be training hard and heavy. Mm -hmm. But where we get into trouble is force feeding specific theoretical variations of the squat. So what I mean by that is like, you know, the dogma power lifter saying that you must uh, barbell box squat mm -hmm. or having the bodybuilder being like, hey, we have to high bar squat to get the quad sweep. You know, these theories usually don't match up for people's individualization of their bodies, their needs, their orthopedic history, and really their general goal. Because mm -hmm. a lot of us, we just want to get stronger. We want to get bigger. We want to stay healthy. And we just need to make sure that we don't pigeonhole ourselves by getting injured in the process and force feeding the wrong types of squat. Sure. Yeah. And, and yeah, and another piece of dogma I feel like you, I hear is you must back squat and you must do it heavy in order for it to even count as lifting. Anything <laughs> else is just basically an accessory movement to that, to that lift. Well, yeah, you know, you, you can look at it two different ways. There's movement patterns and then there are exercises. Mm -hmm. A movement pattern 
is considered the big umbrella which the exercises fall under. So a squat pattern would be that umbrella, and a high bar barbell back squat would be an exercise. So not every exercise is going to fit a specific movement pattern, and for damn sure, not every movement pattern is going to need to be a specific exercise. So really approach. just trying to find the variation that matches you you know, the individualization that you need at any given point in time for your, you know, elicited gold training response, you know, that's the key right there. Sure. Well, and without giving too much away, three of the four exercises that are in your progression are types of front squats as opposed to back squats. Um, what, what, do you, what is it about a front-loaded squat variation that you think makes it more approachable to a wider range of lifters initially? Well, it integrates the shoulder complex as being an active part of the squat pattern. So any movement pattern needs to have full body initiation with a kind of torque tension and stability output that the entire body can elicit. So it's really inherently easy to just throw a bar on your back, lose your spinal position, mm -hmm. lose your shoulder position, and just round over like shit. And it's a lot harder to have a front-loaded barbell, dumbbell, kettlebell, whatever it is, because you actually have to hold the weight actively. And that keeps you from really just uh, falling over, falling forward, and like getting into some poor squatting mechanics right off the bat. So many times we start with either a body weight or an anteriorly loaded squat variation to learn what it is to stay tight and have tension and torque output throughout the shoulders that leads into something called the irradiation effect of tension coming up and through the chain, trying to keep a stronger core position. And that, that's really you know, one of the biggest um, common pitfalls that we see is just people losing core tension and stability and really falling into poor positions at the spine. Right. And as, any, as anybody who's ever tried to do heavy front squats knows, uh, there, there's no escaping the tension. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's like the, the weight almost... Yeah, it forces you into good position as opposed to for pulling you out of it. Absolutely. You know, uh, you look at like the anti-positions of the core. You know, you can have anti-rotation, you can have anti-flexion and extension and side bending. You know, depending how you anteriorly load that, you are going to be challenged in a position to maintain the position. And if you can't, it becomes a self-limiting exercise because mm -hmm. guess what? The weight's going to fall right in front of you onto the ground. Right. Um, as opposed to the barbell back squat, it's really hard to dump a bar if you are going to be falling out of positions. And instead, it's going to turn into some ugly compensation patterns and grinding out some nasty looking reps. Right. Heels in the air, back forward, just everything <laughs> bad. Right. So so let's let's dig into this progression. It starts that, that, uh, with the goblet squat. Um, now, what do, you, what do you like about goblet squats in particular? This is a movement that, you know, everybody's seen by now. It's definitely become far more popular. But what do you like about that movement in particular? <laughs> so I'll start off by saying, you know, the goblet squat isn't only like the pussification of all squats, <laughs> like the rehab style squat. Right. It's something that like I've personally used with Olympians. I've personally used with professional athletes and we've loaded them hard and heavy enough to the point where we can elicit a training response with that variation. Right. You're using a seriously heavy dumbbell in this video in the, in the article. It's uh, yeah, somewhere around 130 pounds. Uh, right? <laughs> you know, every once in a while when we're traveling around, we can get up to about 200 in some of the gyms. But the gym that we work out here in Madison a couple days a week, it only has the 150. So that was kind of limiting factor there. But <laughs> the limiting factor also is one of the reasons that we use the goblet squat to start off with because it becomes something that keeps down the external load on the body but increases the RPE, the rate of perceived exertion and the hardness of the actual squat pattern itself. 
So if you can maximize the amount of trainability that you can get from a movement by minimizing the external load on the body, that's going to be something that is a really great recipe for long-term pain-free training effects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just by having to hold the weight, being able to stabilize it, um, it becomes something that needs to happen as a requisite before you can squat. And that really is, it's humbling for many people because, you know, guys that can squat with four or five wagon wheels on the side, on the back squat, all of a sudden get into a goblet squat and really, really struggle from the coordination standpoint. Mm -hmm. But again, we use this as a teaching tool because it really quickly identifies the weak link in the kinetic chain. And that's something as a coach or as a lifter, it's all about just strengthening those weak links that you find. Sure, sure. Now, how do you respond to that person who's skeptical initially, though, and says, sorry, this can't be a true muscle building tool. It's just too, it's too light. It's only 150 pounds. It's only 200 pounds. So I usually have uh, our athletes, you know, like the, the big meatheads that really love to push iron on the barbell. I have them go through a relative strength test with the goblet squat. And I have gotten so much shit over publishing articles about this relative strength test that I can't even tell you. Probably the most controversial article that we've ever put out that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. But what the test is, is getting half of your body weight. So if I'm a 200-pound man, you're going to get a 100-pound dumbbell. You're going to put it in your hands, and you're going to see how many pristine reps you can get without breaking with a pause. Mm -hmm. And really, my strength metric to look at is having 25 unbroken reps. And that's really something that's going to show that somebody has mastered the squatting movement and has really uh, has a good grasp on what it is to gain tension and torque through the entire pillar. So the shoulder, the hip complex combined with the spinal complex. Mm -hmm. And 25 reps seems like a lot, especially for, um, you know, the dogmatic power lifters or right. bodybuilders out there that really don't hit that kind of metabolic rep scheme. But I'll tell you definitively that our high-end athletes, some of our high-end power lifters, they can do 50 reps without even blinking. Hmm. Um, like my wife, for instance, she's 102 pounds and she could do 50 reps with 50% of her body weight, like but you know, she could do it for a ramp up set. Um, it's, it's something that really just shows movement quality and mastery. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at to try to translate back into the back squat. You know, theoretically, it's not like, uh, that's going to be a direct transference of strength, power, endurance, or, um, you know, any like hypertrophy, but it's something that just shows that you have the components to actually progress and get the most out of the king of all lifts, which is barbell back squat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I actually I actually tried this just yesterday. Um, I, <laughs> I've, I've, I've done uh, I've done a bunch of um, you know kettlebell goblet squats, not as many dub, uh, dumbbell goblet squats in the past. So figuring out how to get the dumbbell into position was was a little bit awkward at first. Um, and I think you know up up around um, 15, 17 reps, it was just the pump kind of won. It's just <laughs> I, I my my motivation waned. I think I could have made we kept going to 25, but I just sort of stopped seeing the point in my quads anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's a serious test. I mean, um, you know, the, the, getting up around 20, 25 reps with any sort of load is, uh, is pretty tough, but yeah, that, the, the, the tension, there's no hiding from that. And you start to get, um, tired in interesting places. Um, the, exactly. up, the upper back in particular, like I definitely feel it in my upper back today, but not in a, not in a bad way. It's like the things got woken up there and I feel like, you know, uh, like I did some, some yoga or something where it actually opened up my thoracic spine fairly significantly by the end of that. But it's interesting though. So not everyone should be passing these relative strength tests. 
you know, if everyone got 100% on every single test in the university, mm-hmm. you know, that university would not be chartered for very long. Oh, and I don't, so, I don't mind failing the test. I'm, I'm good at <laughs> failing strength tests around here. <laughs> so I, I hate to say pass or fail. The reason that we use this test is derived data. Mm-hmm. So for you, you know, if your limiting uh, factor was your quads were just burning up, like guess where your focus is going to be with your lower body strength and hypertrophy work? Mm-hmm. It's going to be the freaking quads. If you can't hold the weight, that's a question that I get a lot. Guess what? Your upper back tension, tightness, and stability, that's your weakest link. Go hammer it in your programming. Mm-hmm. We are just trying to objectify some of this stuff that is so subjective unless you go through a standardized test. Sure. So how, how do you program this? Is it the centerpiece of a, of a lower body day for somebody? Just goblet squats next to the dumbbell rack? It could be. Um, for some of our in-season uh, high-end athletes, the guys that you know are making a couple million dollars on the field on Sundays, this can be a very nice pain-free squat variation that they can use one to two times a week. They can load into the strength or hypertrophy set and rep range, and they can minimize the amount of joint stress and uh, central nervous system stress that they're putting through their system. But many times, this is just a progression. So we get in, we master it, and we keep on going up the chain. Mm -hmm. You know, the goal is never to have to goblet squat like in rehab purgatory for the rest of your life. (laughs) Rehab purgatory, okay. Rehab purgatory is what we need to stay away from. Mm -hmm. So anytime that we're using these variations, it's just that. It's a variation that we can add some novelty to a training effect from. But, you know, the ultimate goal is just to improve enough so we can keep on working up that pyramid, which is, you know, squat variation with the back barbell back squat being at the top of the epitome of movement. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about the next step on that progression, which is the landmine. Um, this is a movement I've seen recommended for a long time, the landmine squat. And I never really bothered with it until just recently because it seemed kind of redundant of the goblet squat. Uh, I've done the RKC certification and I thought, oh, goblet squats are the best front loaded squats without a barbell. But then I tried this and I have to say I'm completely sold on it. Uh, the reason being, it's just, I, I felt I felt like I held rock solid squat form deeper on that particular variation than any other squat variation I've tried. Like no butt wink, even at the very bottom, it was kind of surprising. Um, so how, how did how did you encounter the landmine? What's your history like with that? And what made you include that in your progression? Well, I mean, the landmine's nothing new. Uh, as my friend Christian Thibodeau said, he was talking about this shit back in 2002. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we added a band to it. We started using it in rehab and we started using it in sports performance a little bit more prominently. But again, you know, as with anything in the industry, it's not anything new. It's just new ways to apply it in a strength and conditioning right. style And setting. when you see it on your Instagram feed, it feels new every morning, right? It does. Yeah. Yeah. People, it's going to be new to somebody who's never seen it before. So kind of taking that with a grain of salt. But when you look at the landmine goblet squat, um, it's not a progression or a regression. It's kind of on point with the goblet squat based on your goals. So it could be a progression for somebody because all of a sudden you have the ability to load much heavier. Right. So you can get, you know, multiple 45-pound plates on that barbell and you can be grooving a squat pattern that looks really good and you can be exploding up against that external load because of the strength curve that, you know, the barbell on its one side creates. So you can be a little bit more dynamic with it. Uh, the video that you're referring to on Instagram that I showed a couple of weeks ago was I banded it down. I had it in position and I was going through, I think it was sets of six or sets of 
eight with um, explosive-based landbine goblet squats as a secondary hypertrophy day. So that was like the marquee lift that had uh, a little bit more of bar velocity behind it. But for people that truly struggle with the squat pattern, you know, if you can't goblet squat with a dumbbell or a kettlebell, most likely you're not really tapping into the potential of your posterior chain. So the integration of the glutes and the hamstrings stabilizing the backside of the squat. You know, in our society, we are so anterior chain dominant. You know, right now we're sitting, I'm sitting slouched over. I got my hip flexors tightened up and then my spine's flying forward. And then when I go to squat, guess what? That's going to be something that's going to probably show up in the squat pattern as well. So just because of the, the physics of the landmine position, it forces you back into your hips more. So like you were saying, you know, you got deeper than you have ever before. And all of a sudden you didn't have that butt wink and you didn't have that lower lumbar flexion that's so notorious with uh, painful squats. The reason being is that it forces you back into the position because as the bar lowers closer to parallel with the ground, the bar is actually coming closer to you, forcing you back. So that can be a really big advantage. And another way that it could be a huge advantage is that you have something to hang on to that has a contact point with the ground. So that from a stability standpoint is very advantageous for somebody that truly just doesn't have the coordination, the balance, the stability in a goblet squat or a barbell back squat right off the bat. So it can really be a good relearning tool. Mm -hmm. And again, anytime that we're using this, the goal is to get a training response, maybe to groove the squat a little bit better and then to move on again. So we don't want to get stuck with this variation, but it is a go-to variation, um, you know, secondary squat uh, training sessions in the week or just trying to keep down the external load or um, not trying to fry the, the CNS. Sure, sure. Yeah, and one other thing that I found was interesting about it was after I, I did a set, um, I just kind of sank down into a bodyweight squat as kind of as an assessment to see like, okay, what, what did this actually do for my bodyweight squat? And it, I felt like it was the best bodyweight squat I've had in, in you know, ages. I could just hang out so comfortably at the bottom with no, with no um, curvature really. And that to me, it was also a sign like, okay, yeah, this is, this is something that definitely belongs in the mix. If it ingrains a squat pattern so well that you can actually, you know, pass an assessment that maybe you would not be able to otherwise afterwards, like immediately afterwards. That, that's such a great point because uh, many times when we do use this variation with people, and it can be said for the, the dumbbell goblet squat sure. as well, it's placing you in a position that you relearn how to use proper stability patterns. Our industry loves to say that, hey, if you can't squat deep, it's your freaking mobility. Oh, it's your mobility. It's your flexibility. It's right. not. Eight out of 10 times, you are not going to have better results if you're more flexible or more, more mobile. So you're going to have better results if you can have greater proximal stiffness through the shoulders, the hips, and the core that yields better, smoother, more authentic movement tapping distally into the extremities, whatever the moving part is. So that's one that's easy. Uh, you know, I almost group it as a mobility quote unquote drill because it yields so much better of a movement pattern. Right. That's what and I've been using it that, for. I've been down there every day in the gym now using it a little bit for just, yeah, getting, getting that squat pattern going every day. 
And it's something that you could even use for a primer before your big squats, uh, you know, just getting the groove going and then moving into the into the rack and getting your real work done. Hmm. So now you offered a standard in the goblet squat to aim for this half body weight for 25 reps. Is there a standard to aim for for something like the uh, like the, the landmine squat before you say, all right, let's let's try something else? We, we don't use a standard with that one because uh, the way that you load it is going to be very similar to any other big compound barbell movement pattern. So it really becomes uh, individual dependent on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So then the next stop though on this progression is the barbell front squat, which, uh, you know, now we're in the rack. We're not standing out on the gym floor anymore. Um, <laughs> this, is, this isn't really an exotic movement as much as the previous two, even though I mean, they aren't exotic, but you don't see as many people doing them. But let's say that you build up to this movement after spending weeks focusing on the other two. How will you find it's different than if you just dive in and start doing front squats? So if it's done properly, like if you truly earn the right to step up this pyramid step by step, Mm -hmm. you should be able to go in and implement like the next step up very, very seamlessly. So just like right off the bat, if you're having huge amounts of trouble as soon as you get into like a front rack position, most likely, it's actually the positioning of the barbell that's giving you the trouble. It's not the movement pattern itself. It's not the exercise itself. And uh, you know, something I touched upon in the article was many people just don't have the the shoulder and upper back stiffness capabilities right. of holding a bar, you know, in a front rack position that's essentially in your fingertips while it sits on the front side of your shoulders and your clavicle. And that's okay because unless you're going to the freaking CrossFit games and you're going to be competing on ESPN, nobody gives a shit if you can front rack a barbell. (laughs) We're looking at eliciting a training response. We're trying to get bigger, faster, stronger, more resilient to injury. And if you have to use straps in the variation that I showed, like so be it. That's Mm -hmm. a variation that I've personally used for the last 12 years with very, very good success. And it's many that uh, if it matches up with your goals, that is non-Olympic lifting, non-crossfitting, that's a really a go-to setup because all of a sudden that limitation that you have getting into that front rack position, you can nullify it mm-hmm. and make sure that the, the limiting factor is not your shoulder position for a squat, which really doesn't add up when you kind of step back and look at the effectiveness of a movement. Sure. And the variation you're talking about, if, if it isn't clear to somebody who's listening, is basically you take a couple of lifting straps, wrap them around the bar, and you hold on to the straps uh, rather than holding on to the bar. And I have to say, I, I love that particular variation, not only because, yeah, it makes um, mobility not a limitation, but also it, you get to pull up really actively on those straps. I feel like it almost helps you get into a better position because you have no choice but to pull up on them. Yeah, it absolutely does. And just to make sure that everyone's clear on this, because we get a lot of questions, uh, you are not putting the lifting straps on your wrist and then connecting them to the bar. (laughs) You are literally like taking them so they're long, they're not strapped up yet, putting them, two of them on the bar right where the knurling meets the smooth. And you are literally gripping the straps with your hands over the barbell with your elbows in alignment with your shoulders and your wrists. Um, <laughs> just to be clear on that one, because every once in a while we'll post videos about that and you can't quite see how I'm set up. And then the next day I'll be tagged in a gazillion Instagram videos of people strapped with their wrists to the bar. <laughs> it's, oh, it's an ugly, ugly <laughs> position. Um, but really, yeah, trying to make sure that the shoulders stay active you know, that's something that when we talk about building resilience, building sound posturing, that's one of the best things that we can do. You know, having a barbell on the front side of your body, it creates a more erect torso position. So 
instead of being like uh, your chest parallel to the ground, it's going to bring you more up into a more perpendicular position. And that really helps, again, people to sit back into the squat a little bit more mm -hmm. to, um, you know, use the quads, the glutes, the hamstrings effectively and just get into uh, a better pattern that doesn't involve, you know, deep spinal flexion and, you know, posterior pelvic tilting or butt winking. Sure. Sure. Now, and this, the front squat is also the first variation where you see people using, in addition to whatever, uh, lifting straps or other accessories like that, you see them start, you know, putting on a belt, putting on their squat shoes, putting plates beneath their heels and starting to gear up a little bit for something like that. What, what do you, what do you think of those, uh, of, of those approaches to the barbell front squat or those additions to it? Belts so and, sh and shoes. Start, and yeah, I'll start with lifting shoes. Um, whenever possible, I like to keep people in a flat shoe, a minimalist shoe, a Chuck Taylor is a good one um, because we do not want to create internal or external crutches on our body. So you essentially look at a lifting shoe because of the height of the heel, it changes your relationship with the ground and it almost like pushes your body forward. Sure, that could be good from a competitive standpoint. It can add a couple extra kilos to the bar. Again, if you're an Olympic lifter, they are called Olympic lifting shoes for a reason. But if you have to depend on them even to squat without like a, any resemblance of pain, that's not a good thing. It's usually just a crutch that you're going to be crutching around on for the rest of your training career. Sure. So I try to get people as raw as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are moving into, you know, uh, a pure power or strength range in your sets and your loading is heavy, I have absolutely no problem using your working sets with a belt. That is totally cool because that becomes um, an enhancement of the squat. You can move more load because your bracing strategies are enhanced by using that tool. And then the other slippery slope is going to be using wraps. <laughs> um, for the general fitness public, um, you need to make sure that your risk reward always matches up with every single exercise that you do. So, you know, is wrapping your knees like you're about to go squat a thousand pounds at the Arnold your goal? Or is it just to, you know, elicit X, Y, or Z response to make your life better? So trying to minimize the amount of, you know, external crutches that you have is really big. But, you know, I guess the lifting belt is a question that I get all the time too, because every video that we post, every article that I post that I have a belt on, if I'm doing a one to six RM on a working set, I always get the question like, will that detrain your abs? Mm -hmm. Will your abs like stop working? Not if you do it correctly. If you're strapping on the belt in hopes that, you know, five herniated discs aren't going to happen and you have no resemblance of core stiffness without the belt, that's not a good thing. But if you're a seasoned lifter, you know how to squat, you know what proper tension and stability feels like because you probably should have earned the right to do it with the goblet squat variation, then you use the belt to just get a little bit more out of your sets and that's totally fine. Okay. So so what yeah, you know, what about this person who puts the belt on in the uh, in the locker room doesn't take it off until <laughs> I saw a guy um straight up at the urinal wearing his belt the other day and I I, I didn't ask him if he was bracing against it while he's taking a leak necessarily, but that's that's something you see in a commercial gym a lot. This guy he walks out oh, of the man. locker room wearing the belt and it's on the entire time like basically on the treadmill. Yeah, so I, I try to limit it to uh, working sets of squat and hip hinge patterns. So aka any squat variation that you're doing heavy or any deadlift variation that you're doing heavy. 
if you have to use it for bicep curls, you're not doing something right. <laughs> you know, if you're on the lat pull down, just flailing around with your belt on, you know, that's not exactly what we're going for. What if your so belt that, looks really cool, though? <laughs> it has uh, your name it on look, it. I mean, it's part of the meathead wardrobe, right? right. Like you got your cutoffs, your Zubaz, and then the freaking <laughs> belt over it. Um, yeah, don't be that guy. Okay, that's do not be that guy, people. Um, do, do you do you have a, a standard that you like to aim for for the front squat? Like, all right, you know, you need to hit uh, body weight for ten or body weight and a half for ten. Uh, it depends how we load it. Um, it's not as strict as some of those relative strength uh, tests that we do with the goblet squat mm-hmm. because it's something that we do use as like an indicator lift uh, for strength power hypertrophy. Uh, it's something that we want to see some serious progression on in terms of your strength and your performance on that lift. And this alone can be a terminal squat lift if it matches up with your goals and your body type. So for some people, um, they're just not going to tolerate the barbell back squat well. And guess what? They don't have to. They can get a great training response through the entire body with the front squat. So all of a sudden, this becomes our marquee lift. And this is something that from a long-term progression standpoint, we want to be making steps forward little by little in every single training block that you're doing. Yeah, we had a, a big program come out a couple of years ago with one of our one of uh, our big famous athletes, and uh, it was the marquee lift. It was front squats. There was, you know, maybe one and a half rep front squats. And I remember there were some comments where people were saying, this this is not bodybuilding. This is CrossFit. <laughs> you guys are training like phony athletes doing all these front squats instead of back squats now. But I, I like, uh, I hear an increasing number of people saying that these days. You know, the front squat is just, it's a better place to stop for a lot of people, especially if if they're going to go do back squats, you know, they they do find themselves dependent on, I, I, need, li- I need lifting shoes in order to get any real depth or any good form on the back squat. You know? Yeah, if it matches up with your goals, uh, any squat variation can do the job. It's usually not the theoretical thing that you're reading all the articles about that is going to work for you. It's the thing that when you get in and you actually test it out yourself, you know, a, a subject line of N equals one, it feels the best. You're able to train it. You're able to elicit a mind-muscle connection. That's the kind of stuff that you want to stick with. And it doesn't matter what everything else says. If you can identify that this is your go-to, you know, so be it because your goals are going to be highly, highly more yielded with that kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing people do like about back squats, though, is that you can put it on your back and you can do a really high rep set that, you know, 20 rep sets and all those famous bodybuilding protocols. Do you find that the barbell front squat lends itself to that? Or is the tension just so extreme that, you know, uh, up around 15, 20 reps, it's just no good anymore? So uh, people curse out my name that uh, train with me on my functional hypertrophy training program because in one of the first phases, we have uh, the secondary uh, lower body hypertrophy day. The marquee lift is five sets of 12 front squat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it doesn't look like much on paper. But then when you get through that second set, you're like, holy fuck. It's a whole body response because of what we were talking about before. It lends itself to having to have shoulder stability, core stability. There's no faking a front squat because if you can't hold it, you can't hold it and you're going to drop the weight. But I think uh, the barbell back squat does lend itself a little bit better to the high-end rep schemes um, you know, in hypertrophy or even like a metabolic set. Uh, but I still don't usually try to program that any more than like a 12 RM. Mm-hmm. Really, the limiting factor becomes how stiff can you stay throughout the pillar? And we're kind of talking about this off air. If you lose your stiffness and all of a sudden you turn an authentic squat pattern that's targeting 
contractile musculature into a compensated squat pattern that just turns into ugly reps. You're uh, you know, flexing your spine over, you're losing stability, and you're using non-contractile structures, aka the joints, the ligaments, um, you know, the vertebral discs, all that stuff. That's something that you want to stay away from because the, the end risk to that is just so much higher in conjunction with you not eliciting a very uh, good training response off of it either because all of a sudden the emphasis is taken away from the musculature and put on the non-contractile joints. Mm. So as soon as you lose tension, as soon as we lose the ability to really do good pristine reps with tempo and form and technique, that's when a set should end for me. And for most people, it ends around six to eight reps um, some super endurance studs on the barbell can get up to 12 to 15, but I've seen far and few people between that can go over 15 with really pristine um, types of stability at their spine. Hmm, that's good to remember. Yeah. And speaking of that whole body response to front squats, I will say nothing in the world <laughs> makes me hungry like front squats does. <laughs> I just hearing that five sets of 12, I'm hungry just, just listening to those numbers. Uh, do, do you find that, that people, <laughs> uh, does that come back to you through the, uh, through the media channel or social media channels when people are doing your program? Like I've never been this hungry before. Oh yeah. I'm I mean, you can you can think about it because you're just uh, you're using more energy uh, mm -hmm. to stabilize a weight because everything's more active. Um, the best lifters in the world, the strongest, the biggest lifters in the world, they know how to use every single ounce of tension in their body to get X amount of weight on the bar or to grow a muscle X amount of size. Um, it's when we get in trouble when we think it's just isolation. You know, squat is just for the legs. Right. Oh, a front squat's just for the quads. It's not. We're training our full body all the time, and the quicker that people kind of conceptualize that, the more their lifts go up, the bigger they get, the leaner they get because they're actually eliciting a stronger training response from it. That always that that front squats of the for the quads thing always seems simplistic to me. Anyway, um, I mean, I know so many people who um, say that their ass is sore after they do, they do front squats, and to me, that just says they're doing better squats anyway. Exactly. Okay, so stop four is the uh, on the progression is the back squat, but it's not just any old back squat. You recommend a box squat with band resistance. Um, now, first of all, what do you like about the box? What do you think, feel like the box adds to the equation? For the average lifter, they feel very vulnerable at the bottom range of motion of a squat. It's the range of motion that they're going to be likely to kind of uh, either round over or they're not going to go deep enough. So it's like this no man's land of squat depth. Uh, written many, many articles about, you know, theoretically where sh people should be able to get in terms of like their distance from ass to mm -hmm. ground. But really, it, uh, it depends on the person. It depends on the person's hip structure, their spinal structure, their skill level with the movement. There's just so many variables that are in play. So by putting the bar on your back, you know, for the first time, if you are going up into this progression, we want to take the apprehension out of the movement. And we do that by simply supporting the bottom range of motion with the box. So people get a bad misconception with this because they think it's like you sit down, like you're sitting down on the fucking sofa, ready right. to watch uh, a <laughs> 24 marathon or something. You don't, it's still active. So you are literally like going down with as much tension as you can possibly go down with and sit on the box. And we try to say that you deload 50% of your body weight into the box, but you are staying highly active when your ass is in contact with that box. There's going to be the slightest of rockbacks 
and then it's going to be an explosive base movement up. So this has the advantage not only of stabilizing the bottom portion of the squat, but it's actually a form of plyometric or kinetic energy accumulation training that uh, not a lot of people realize. Because as soon as your ass makes contact with that box, we store a lot of kinetic energy in our system for about one to three seconds. And that can make it a more powerful squat out of the bottom position that is going to also be more stable. So that's a variation that I love to use with people. You know, going one step further with that, um, I also love using accommodating resistance in band form because, again, we're deloading that most vulnerable position of the squat, but we're also teaching our lifters to be more explosive, to be stiffer off that box because we can accelerate the bar into a more terminal end range of motion at the top of the lift. So if you think about just not having bands or chains or any of that stuff on the bar, naturally you have to decelerate the bar so it doesn't fly up off your back and you don't lose stability at the top before you get it back into the rack. You know, by adding um, accommodating resistances, you can learn how to accelerate the bar under tension and stability a little bit more. And that's going to be something that translates back into your free squats when you do uh, program those in. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I imagine that's, there, there, there's definitely a grind then at the top half of that, but you're grinding through the safest and strongest part of the range of motion, as opposed to the most vulnerable. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, so now, how, the other thing oh, I should say about bands, um, just from a corrective standpoint, it could be used on front squat. It could be used on back squat. It could be used on the landmine goblet squat. But the ability to use bands uh, also helps to stabilize a squat pattern. Because again, you think about uh, contact with the ground. So the bands are grounded and they are in contact with the barbell. Your body's in contact with the barbell. Therefore, you have more ground contact as compared to something where you only have your feet on the ground. Um, so it does help people uh, create uh, stiffness through the shoulders, the hips, and the core functioning as a unit together. And that's something that even with this tiniest uh, pro mini band on each side of the barbell, I've seen lifters be able to banded squat heavier than they were without the bands, which makes no sense. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, it makes no sense when you try to like add up the physics. But when you add up the neurology of being stiffer, and having a smoother, more explosive squat, it makes perfect sense. So even the the tiniest of bands can do really, really well for cleaning up movement patterns. Mm, so this isn't something that's just for power lifters. Then I, I see somebody saying, "Oh God, I'd be so self conscious putting these on the bar, you know, acting like a badass in the gym." When normally it's just this guy who's the power lifter in the gym who would be attaching bands to the bar. Yeah, you know, uh, that's one of the biggest gripes that powerlifting coaches have with the bands, you know, the ones that don't use the dynamic uh, effort method, is that it's almost, um, it's almost a stability. They call it like the, the Smith machine. They, they try to say that, you know, banded squats like a Smith machine because of the ground contacts. Right. But I think if you do it the right way, it's just getting that stimulus so your system feels how it's supposed to feel when you're doing a movement pattern. And then you can go again and translate that into whatever you want to do with your lifts. Hmm. No, I, I noticed in the video that you have a, a step and then a few plates stacked up on top of the step. How do you, how do you go about finding your ideal box height? This is a this is an easy one. So whatever depth you can get to with a neutral-ish spinal position. So I say neutral-ish because you're not going to have always the most pristine straight spine where there's absolutely no movement happening from it. You know, we're not after perfection here. We're after good enough. 
you know, if you fall away from good enough and it turns into pure shit, that's when we get in trouble with chronic or traumatic base injuries. So I have people sit, most people are going to be around uh, 10 degrees above or below parallel. Uh, if you look at, you know, your upper leg, your femur bone, uh, and the hip uh, crease when you get down into that lower squat pattern. So you can get around there, but there's no, uh, there's no harm in going, you know, 20, 30 degrees above parallel if that's what you can keep a spinal neutral position at. Because again, we're just trying to minimize the unwanted movement happening at the pelvis, the lumbar spine, and the entire uh, spine as a unit. And we're trying to maximize the amount of trainability that we can get through the active tissues. Hmm. It's a, the, the way you talk about it, it kind of reminds me of a, of a rack pull. When I think about good enough versus complete shit, you look at somebody's rack pull, they have a beautiful rack pull from the knee, but then once they're picking up a barbell for from an arbitrary height determined by Olympic lifting off of the floor, everything goes to complete shit. You think these two, did these two uh, movements have a certain resonance in that way? Yeah, you know, you could say for any movement, not just the deadlift or the squat, but every single movement, uh, you have your authentic movement capabilities, and then you have your compensatory movement capabilities. You want to stay within authentic so you can get a better training effect, and you can make that training effect pain-free for the long term. You know, that's really the goal is uh, trying to ingrain these movement patterns, trying to crush your muscles, and you want to spare the joints in the process. If mm -hmm. you can do that, if you can leave the gym every single day saying that, hey, I didn't crush my joints today and my muscles got pumped to fuck, that is going to be a victory. That's going to be something that you're going to have longevity with. And that's going to be something that allows you to progress you know, years and decades instead of pigeonholing yourself into an injury after six weeks. Hmm. Yeah. Now, one more question along, along those lines. We've had a number of different articles from different strength coaches over the last six months or so addressing the idea of like, how low uh, should the normal person go? And not, not in squat depth, but in terms of reps, you know, some would say there's really no reason for anybody who's not a power lifter to go below th a solid triple or a solid right. four. Um, how, how low should somebody go on the back squat if they are just that person who says, you know what, I'm, I'm a person. I'm not, a, I'm not a crazy athlete. I'm just looking to get stronger, bigger, more capable. Yeah, general preparedness, general fitness population. And I don't see a whole lot of reason ever to go under a 3RM. Um, in our key programs that I put out to the masses, we, we have eights, fives, and threes. Three is as heavy as we get on the big compound movements for that exact reason. Um, as soon as you get under a 3RM, really in any compound movement, it becomes more neurological than it does mechanical. And the average person is after a mechanical response to training, aka something that can elicit a response for hypertrophy, making the tissues bigger or stronger mechanically by actually you know, making the tissues bigger, as opposed to how well did you execute that one RM today? You know, it could be 20% up or it could be 20% down based off of your execution, uh, your CNS and your neurological makeup on that given set. Mm -hmm. So when we do, I have been playing around with um, one and two RMs for some general fitness population, but we underload them. So we submaximally load and we try to use those as like one last set where people can explode a fast rep and they can just get used to having just like 5, 10, 20 more pounds on the bar. And that just opens up their mind to like, hey, I have some more potential here. But it's more of a mind fuck than it actually is uh, listening to better training response. Right. So it's not, yeah, it's not a battle for their life necessarily. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no <laughs> grinding reps there. Um, but I would say for 99% of the people uh, staying between the 3 and 8 range, that's going to be where the 
the money's made. Hmm. And, and as people start to move down sometimes in, in those rep ranges, they can also get completely obsessed with accessory work, like adding more and more accessory movements. Do you feel like um, with, with a progression like this, does it require much in terms of accessory moves or is it more about getting the most out of each of these possible moves, getting every everything you can out of the move itself? Well, uh, there's a big difference between having glaring weak links, um, having like a, a deficit that is literally just limiting your external load on the bar to the point where you've been plateaued for six months to a year, and you just go in little by little and getting stronger. If you have these glaring red flags, um, that's a reason for accessory work. Mm -hmm. But many times I see for general fitness population, it's not the red flags that are like, hey man, like this one one to two inch uh, portion of your squat is super weak there. Like we need a, we need a glute ham raise to fix that. Right. It's more so of just fixing the movement patterns itself. Um, you know, people have low hanging fruit out there that they're just not picking in terms of just fixing movement, just making the movement pattern better. Uh, I have this conversation all the time with uh, my colleagues is that we spend decades trying to squat perfectly and it's always the ongoing chase. So for somebody with general fitness goals, um, it's going to be a very low hanging fruit that if you can even just make one or two smart adjustments to your movement patterns, it's going to just give you so much more of a benefit from your training because, again, you're going to maximize the trainability of the movements and you're going to minimize the stuff that's probably flaring you up and leaving you with chronic aches and pains. Uh, that's that's great, great perspective to end on, I feel like. Um, thanks thanks for talking with us and tell us where we can find you online. Uh, and, I, and also, you said you, that these are in a program that you sell through your website, right? These particular movements? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you guys can find me at drjohnrussin.com, D-R-J-O-H-N-R-U-S-I-N.com. And a lot of the programs that I've written articles for bodybuilding.com on uh, and a lot of the articles on our website, the methods are all put into one single cell program. That's a 12-week functional hypertrophy training program that the goal is uh, to achieve the holy grail of training, to get strong, get ripped, but stay resilient to injury, especially if you have that in your past. Great. So I'd highly recommend that. Great. And I, I highly recommend following John on Instagram as well. I feel like there's something solid there every day just for, you know, <laughs> some, something you didn't quite think of or one of those things where, you know, you can share it with somebody and say, this, this is just a really interesting way to approach this particular movement. So I totally recommend that. And we'll include uh, links to your articles and uh, social media on the page of the podcast. So John, John Russin, thanks for talking with us very much. Oh, thank you so much. If you like free stuff, you're going to like Tim's Rewards by Tim Hortons. You can earn free food or drinks after every seven purchases. Cool. How do I win? Um, it's not a contest. You just use your Tim's Rewards card, and after seven purchases, you score a free coffee, tea, or baked good. Whoa, so I've got a pretty good chance of winning. Well, actually, you've got a 100% chance of winning. Those are great odds. <laughs> they sure are. Free coffee and more with Tim's Rewards. It's Tim Hortons' way of saying thanks. Valid only at participating restaurants. Please visit restaurant or timhortons.com slash rewards for full program details.